Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, welcome to our first audio edition for 2021, and it's a cracker. Before we jump into a fascinating conversation with Menulog's Chief Marketing Officer, Simon Cheng, and how he's outgrowing the mighty Uber Eats, you'll see when you jump over to mi-3.com.au that we've redesigned and relaunched our website and have some new announcements about MI3's new editor, Brendan Coyne, and some super additions to the MI3 editorial team. Check it out. I'm very happy about our overhaul and much more is to come this year. But let's get to food delivery aggregators, startups, media mix, and what the future of food delivery might look like. We did a story mid last year with Simon at Menulog on how he was managing the business and brand through COVID and it went off with MI3's audience. It was one of our biggest stories for 2020, partly because of Snoop Dogg's allure in a Menulog campaign, I, I suspect, but more because Simon's a CMO at a digital pure play saying crazy things like TV, radio and out of home remain powerful marketing channels and why and how he's managing brand building and performance marketing. And of course, Menulog is growing like crazy and we like a good news story. Six months on from our last conversation with Simon, Menulog in Australia continues its growth march. It's the best performing country in Menulog's portfolio and as we're about to hear, it's closing in on Uber Eats dominance. So welcome Simon Cheng. Let's start with the big question. How is Menulog tracking versus Uber Eats and Deliveroo? It's a good news story I think for you in that you're increasing your market share I think. G'day Paul. Very lovely to be here. Thank you um, very much for the for uh, the kind invitation to get involved with this and tell the Menulog story. Um, just a small correction to what you said uh, up front. Um, the global business is actually known as Just Eat Takeaway, of which menu, um, we are known as Menulog in Australia. Got it. Um, but but uh, globally, uh, particularly in the European markets, we are known as Just Eat Takeaway. Some of my some of my detractors will love that on air correction. So well done, Simon. Good one. <laughs> uh, so look, Menulog. Has has been a um, fantastic growth story last uh, over the last uh, 18 months to two years, actually. You only need to look at Google Trends over the last, uh, during the COVID period, over the last 12 months to, to see the market share gains that the business has made on our uh, competitors. I guess even before the pandemic, uh, going into that period, we were experiencing double-digit growth. So our growth actually started before the, uh, the COVID-induced period, um, which uh, a lot of people probably didn't realise. And so that's um, because we put a number of strategies in place prior to that, that, uh, that meant that we were growing double digit already going into the period when uh, all the lockdown started in March. Now, obviously, when um, when it started in March, you know, a lot of restaurants started closing and uh, we found ourselves in a position of being uh, considered an essential service. And um, the only way for restaurants to remain in business were to be able to deliver. We immediately experienced triple digit growth. And so that that's a pretty big deal for a business that had been around for that has now been around for 15 years, and uh, leading up to that point, uh, prior to kind of 2019, uh, was facing some challenging times with uh, you know some of the competition who have who you know who arrived uh, into the country, and so uh, so yeah, so we saw 
triple digit growth as uh, we went into that uh, COVID period and even coming, I guess, we're, you know, the country's still in this period, but as uh, restrictions started lightening up and we started coming out of the winter period where we would traditionally trade quite well. Uh, and uh, as we go into summer, we're quite a seasonal business. We'd normally trade down. Um, we're continuing to grow. Uh, and so we only just announced our Q4 2020 trading results recently. And so to give you an idea of how uh, the Australian market compares or the Menulog brand compares to the rest of the world, the COVID pandemic has been, um, you know, has left the entire industry in a very fortunate position. The Just Eat Takeaway global business uh, uh, announced a 57% year-on-year growth for Q4 2020. That was revenue, was it, Simon? That's orders growth. Orders growth, right. Yeah, that's top-level orders growth. Yep. And in Australia, we saw 166% growth in that uh, Q4 period. So wow. um, almost tripled the amount of orders that we did in the same period last year. Tell me, what what um, what is it about Australia that's that's working? I mean, it's good growth globally, but what are you doing differently here? What are the dynamics of the market dynamics that are different or the marketing and that, how the business is operating here? What's going on? Look, I'd love to take all credit for it, for marketing. I mean, marketing plays a part, obviously, but look, the, the, business, uh, the business is run by a really, you know, great great uh, group of collaborative, intelligent uh, leadership team. And it's it's the sum of all its parts, right? The, um, we, we obviously had a, uh, a natural organic bump thanks to uh, the, you know, the current environment with, uh, with COVID and many more people um, likely to order delivery. Um, but the, the fact that we've outgrown the global you know, market by so much, it's because of it. There's a number of strategies we put in place in Australia. Uh, in particular, there were a few, I guess, few big bets we made early on in the period when we could see a period coming where restaurants would be closed. And so we, we, had re- really strong relationships already with uh, uh, industry lobby groups to to work with them in lobbying the government to ins- you know to to convince them that uh, restaurants should be able to continue staying open for delivery, and uh, and so what what we did at that at that time as well was we invest we made a big bet in investing in uh, you know our sales teams uh, to go and sign up more restaurants and uh, and you know for lesser commission than we normally would and lesser commission than the competitors. We also worked with a lot of these restaurants uh, in trying to con- uh, like rest- existing restaurants on our platform to convert front of house staff into delivery drivers so that they wouldn't need to uh, you know lay off any staff and so uh, so the combination of that uh, and signing up a lot more new restaurants in that period really helped contribute to to the growth in that period and I think we talked earlier about the exclusivity changed of the whole market right so up until then there was more exclusive arrangements between the competing uh, uh, delivery aggregators but but that changed, I think you said. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so up until that point, I, I guess I liken it to the travel industry. About 15-odd years ago, uh, when a lot of the big aggregators started coming up, you know, your what-ifs, your Expedias, Booking.coms and all that, right? And around that period at the start, uh, a lot of these aggregators had niches in terms of, you know, they only aggregate boutique hotels or these guys only did smaller hotels and these ones did big chains, et cetera. And eventually, uh, consolidation happened in the industry and, and it was a commoditized product range, right? Everyone offers every type of hotel out there possible, 
right? And um, we we were going through that. Our industry was going through a similar kind of consolidation, uh, and COVID's just accelerated that. By what two or three years? Do you think? Definitely, I, I would say. Look, the penetration and the growth has definitely accelerated us to kind of an endpoint of two to three years, where we would have been in two to three years' time, uh, and and that's meant that exclusivity uh, arrangements that were in place before, uh, a lot of them were broken at the beginning of COVID or have been during the co- the you know that period uh, through winter last year, um, and it meant that everyone. Uh, has essentially almost got everyone, you know, all the restaurants on the platforms now, right? And uh, and and we we knew that point was coming, uh, and that's why we believe that over the next two to three years, the biggest differentiator differentiator for us was going to be investing in marketing, investing in customer experience, uh, and you know, differentiation through that way, um, as well as obviously tech makes a big difference, right? But uh, but definitely through customer experience, through your service delivery, through your marketing, and how you are perceived uh, that. They were going to be the main differentiators. Penetration for food food service for food delivery apps is at what 90 percent, perhaps. Is it is that where it's got to now? Yeah, pen- penetration is probably closer to about half the market have used or ha- um, you know have used it at some point in time. Okay. Um, but uh, what what's happened uh, during this pandemic period is that uh, the number of users who now have multiple apps on their phone have uh, you know increased, and so what we see now. Is four out of five people who use a food delivery service will have multiple apps on their on their. Uh, phone, and so uh, what that means is that it, you know, again, differentiation is um, even harder, and it becomes a mental availability game. Yes, and it's fascinating. We're going to get to that in a sec, but menu log is growing, and you're getting you're growing share. So, what is it about this mental availability play that you're doing, and how are people behaving when they've got their their, their phones and their apps, and which one they decide to use uh, in terms of an aggregator? What are you doing? Mental availability is built through reaching as many people as possible as consistently as possible and with a, you know, regular frequency, I guess, right? And, you know, these are all kind of the textbook type definitions. Um, but we certainly subscribe to that. I mean, we our, our business, you know, we are a digital, we are a tech business. We're a digital pure play business. Um, but uh, we use a lot of traditional channels in TV, outdoor and radio. And and so we invest a lot in, the, in, you know, in those channels because we believe that they are very successful in building mental availability. They are still one of the uh, most effective ways to reach a mass audience uh, and um, and gain attention of mass audiences. I mean, if you were to look at something like YouTube and Google, you could probably argue that that uh, they have much higher reach than some of these other channels, but the attention uh, of those channels are a lot harder to build brands with. And, and that's why we continue to invest so much in tradi- uh, traditional channels like TV and, uh, and BVOD. You know, BVOD, I consider a similar um, channel in, uh, in building brands to uh, linear TV. Um, BVOD potentially you could you could argue is a more premium channel than uh, than than linear TV, but that's why. So it's just not now for so the the game for you in terms of uh, how you're marketing and this this mental availability and reach and frequency, which is obviously decades old, and and you've still and you've got a digital digital pure play marketer like you talking reach and frequency, which is in a whole world sometimes seen as a bit old school and a bit old fashioned, but uh, real and live and working. I think it's a fascinating. Well, hopefully we'll drill down to that a little bit more. But again, this is not just about your mainstream is not just about getting people to download the app you're also using it to use the app more often that's part of the strategy is that right yeah that's right and you know it's not rocket science you know all marketers will tell you and you learn this in university that it's about acquiring customers and then it's about retaining them mm. and we have a very strong focus on both of them 
many businesses can get uh, quite distracted, I guess, from some of the bigger picture goals. And where that's one thing we're probably very uh, relentless and ruthless on uh, to to ensure that uh, you know we have a really strong growth mindset. And clearly, we do when you look at the the outcomes. Uh, we have a really strong growth mindset in this business, and uh, and we know we know what it takes to grow. And we are just relentless at driving the channels or the initiatives or uh, the activities to um, to to achieve that. Just run through then, Simon. I mean, it's, we won't get into great detail because it's probably strategically um, you, you like to keep it tight. But channels in terms of their efficacy, their effectiveness for what? If you, you talked about, you even talked about on, on, in our previous conversation about radio being in play for you and out of home and television, and then you've still got, you're, you're ramping up in social and you've got YouTube and you're doing all that. So how do you, what are the, what are the, each of the channels used for? Are they combined for the same thing or are they, have they got specialisms that you're looking to, for them to deliver uh, individually? We take a, a kind of two-tier approach. We have, you know, our brand activity and our performance activity. Uh, not rocket science, like I said uh, before. Um, we're just very clear in what each channel's role is, uh, I guess. And 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 you know the brand and performance thing. Uh, it, you know we it's it's I, we may have spent a bit of time talking about the traditional channels just then, and that obviously plays a bigger part in the brand side of things. But performance is just as important for us, obviously, because we're a tech. You know, we're a digital player. Mm. But there's no point in spending so much at this end of the uh, funnel and uh, creating demand. You know, generating all this demand when you're not actually investing anything and capturing the demand. Right. And so that's why we have this balanced approach in brand and performance. Um, on the brand side of things, uh, like I said before, you know, there are certain channels that I believe are um, stronger at building brands. Um, on the, you know, we don't actually talk about TV uh, on its own. We talk about a screens approach, which is not a new concept to marketers. Uh, it's just a lot of marketers will talk about it, but probably not executed on, on that way. And for us, the screens approach is your, you know, your TV, your BVOD, your YouTube, and we see social as a extension of our screen strategy as well. Um, Each of those channels have different levels of efficacy um, because of the level of attention and screen time that people have and and the format that uh, and the way you consume it will mean a different way, a different uh, level of absorption of messages, um, which is why we kind of take a total screens approach. Um, Out of Home uh, is in that same mix that helps build brand and mental availability for us. And um, and radio is about a frequency play. You know, radio... For us, uh, last year, it would it would really be uh, missing a trick, I think, if we were launching a campaign with a major, you know, celebrity in Snoop Dogg and not using the audio medium to promote it. Um, the jingle itself and uh, the jingle itself has actually become a uh, a major brand um, asset for us, a distinctive brand asset for us. Uh, and so, using the radio medium has uh, it would be an oversight not to include it in the mix. And then on the performance side of things, obviously. Uh, Google paid search. We uh, we invest a lot in performance channels, and we're a major partner of Google here in Australia. And um, and social for us plays a big part as well in performance. And so, in terms of the the two things, the changing uh, efficacy or effectiveness of each of those channels, and the weighting that you're putting to them uh, last year versus this year, or is there a is there a, has it been have you been moving around with that testing and seeing whether the, this the, the what the optimal mix is? Does it look different uh, from twelve months ago? Yeah, it does. 
the mix the mix looks uh, very different because we're always learning and optimizing as we go. So every three months, the mix will uh, slowly kind of move and optimize uh, to the results that we're trying to achieve, right? And the, the results we're trying to achieve is, uh, you know, top of mind awareness, or some people call it spontaneous awareness, uh, and, uh, and, you know, general awareness levels. And uh, obviously, ultimately, it's about orders and commercial performance, right? So um, each, each of those channels play a different part in attracting different types of audiences. So we, we're always looking at the types of customers that are coming in and using the, the product. Uh, and, and then again, adjust, adjusting accordingly. And do you, do you see uh, channels that work for uh, a younger customer base versus mid versus old like me? Is there a difference in how you see these things performing for, by, by uh, customer type? Firstly, I don't think you're that old. Th- thank you, Paul. Simon. It's the nicest thing someone said to me since <laughs> New Year's Day. Yeah. Yeah, look, different channels obviously appeal to different, um, you know, demographics of, uh, of audience. For us, our brand historically has actually been a really strong family brand. Right. For the first 13 years of, of ex- existence, it was very much about uh, families and really that kind of uh, Friday night, Saturday night dinner uh, treat occasion, uh, and and the and the reason for that is the the business was started as an aggregator for restaurants that have their own delivery drivers. Right, right, and what we call the self delivery market. Right, and um, those kinds of business, your traditional, you know, corner Chinese takeaway, Indian takeaway, pizza shops, all of those guys that have their own delivery drivers, um, generally exist existed more so in suburban um, situations and appealed to you know the families, etc. Right, and a lot of them were having doing their own deliveries on that Friday, Saturday, Sunday night occasion. And so uh, and so um, that was the that were the roots of the business, right? And so um, the because of that, there was a real stigma to break in terms of who we appealed to and what our product was for. And so one of the big things that unlocked our growth was r- really putting a line in the sand uh, and telling people that we are not just about dinner where you do more than dinner and we are not just about families. We also uh, cater to, you know, that, that younger demographic and particularly, you know, in the uh, inner urban areas. When did that start? When did you sort of start to shift that strategy or that positioning? In 2019. Okay. 2019, it was, it was very clear that we'd, you know, we'd made a um, deliberate declaration, in, you know, internally with our, our own um, business that we were going to broaden the appeal of the of the. Uh, business and brand um, to really go and chase other demographics because for the for a marketplace business like ours like any kind of marketplace business like an Amazon or an eBay or an Expedia or you know it's, um, it, it's all about volume and scale and you actually need to be able to appeal to a very broad um, demographic of uh, audience um, and so to be pigeonholed as just the family brand and just in Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's what was inhibiting our growth. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting um, progression of what you've done, particularly with, as you said before, a super competitive set, right? And you've got a big brand out there, a big global brand that's got some uh, momentum behind it on the on the travel side and then tapping the eats. I'm talking about Uber Eats clearly now and to be able to match or match it with that natural momentum that that brand has got. You had you had a lot of work ahead of you to do. Yeah, we did. It was a big punt actually getting involved with um, this business in in uh, you know back in 2019. I've only been uh, in the business for just under two years. I joined it uh, April 2019, but you know the the business has put its money where its mouth is. Uh, we've invested a lot, and uh, you know, and the ambition is to is to be number one. And you're closing the gap, you say. So how far? What's the time frame? Should we be able to? 
talk to Simon Ching again and go, okay, Mr. Number One. Um, but what is the objective there? What timeline at least? We don't think it's going to happen overnight, but we're very happy with the progress we've made so far. Look, speak to me again in another six to 12 months, you know, and we can we can track progress again. I, I look forward to that. Absolutely. <laughs> I will, trust me. Um, and so just out of interest, when, when you started talking about the investment in brand and some of those legacy media channels to get mental availability uh, and awareness, or beyond awareness, I should say, but repeat. Um, was that when you came on or was it happening already? Was Menulog sort of moving that way or is that was that sort of a uh, Simon Cheng sort of uh, strategic imperative? Oh, uh, it, it was developed. Uh, it was it was a new thing that we developed developed around the you know, around mid mid 2019 right. after I joined. But the business had already started making um, gains in laying down really, really strong foundations um, to, um, you know, to be able to compete uh, in the market. So um, one of the biggest changes that was made, um, one of the biggest pivot points that was made before I joined uh, was um, the launch of the delivery service. You know, like I said before, the business was only operating as a marketplace businesses for the restaurants that did their own delivery. You know, and uh, and so the decision was made. Uh, you know, not long before I joined to roll out a delivery service, and around the time I joined is when we started to really, really scale that. Um, you know, that service um, in conjunction with all these other growth strategies that we put in place. Uh, you know, um, after I started. Well, you're right. You made a comment earlier about it being a big punt for you to join because if it, it, on the surface, if it was me, for instance, I'd sit there and go. How, what what opportunities Menulog have when there's a couple of big players out there that have that have got some momentum? So that punt that you talked about, why did you take it? Who wants to work for the number one brand in any market? Right. You know, as a marketer, you want to work for challenger brands. You want to feel like you can make a difference. That was ultimately was about for me. I mean, my I'm my background's in working for uh, you know I want to work for high growth businesses. Uh, most of the businesses I've worked in have been um, in high growth categories. Well, so for our audience, just name a couple. What's your background there on, on, on the context of that? So uh, so I've worked in uh, in the health and wellness industry uh, for like health wellness retailing. That's a really um, fast growing category and I worked in the cruise industry I was part of the um, that kind of 10 year period uh, during the big cruise boom and prior to that I worked in you know I worked a bit at Qantas and uh, in advertising agencies and the principles that you were applying to those previous sectors you worked in was it for what you're doing now at Menulog were they formed then or did you, was it quite a different approach what you had to do with Menulog versus what you've done in historically You've always got to build on the knowledge that you gain in every role, I think, and all the people that you touch and learn from. A lot of the general principles have been taught to me by really smart people in the past I've worked with and in businesses I've worked in. Um, a lot of the strategies we had in place probably 15 years ago are completely outdated now. I remember we spent a lot of money in newspaper advertising in the cruise industry, right. uh, which, you know, we wouldn't, I, I, you know, I can't remember the last time I worked on a print ad, to be honest. Yes. Not to say print ad, print advertising doesn't work. It's just the categories I've been in uh, since then haven't uh, really been, um, hasn't been relevant. Well, it does get us to this point though, that you are a little um, sort of unconventional for a CMO in a digital pure play in that you still talk about the efficacy of, of, of legacy media channels when many digital uh, marketers, if you like, or digital, digital, digital orientated um, companies essentially go, it's all digital, you don't need to do any of that legacy stuff and it's old fashioned and old world um, and it's dying or already dead. And this is sort of the narrative that comes through in our, in our, in our industry, right? Um, you're still a fan of that. And so it's just, it's, you, you are un- unconventional in that, in, that, in that context. What is going on with your peers and with the market that says all that stuff, that old world, 
world media stuff is 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 dead or dying and not relevant you you, you've got a very different approach to that yeah i will always recommend the best approach i feel is right for the brand or the market that we're working in um the reason why I think what you're calling some of these more traditional channels, uh, I believe, are appropriate for our business is that we are a product that appeals to everyone. You know, we're not a niche product. Um, we have ambitions to be a global power brand, you know, a global super brand. Uh, and um, the fastest and most efficient way to get there is to use mass market channels that can build a mental availability, build emotional connection. And uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, more traditional channels um, uh, help with that. And I mean, uh, maybe that's maybe that's not quite an accurate statement. I would say uh, channels that are more visually appealing, like, uh, you know, video channels, um, uh, you know, do a better job at the video and audio channels, um, provide um, more dimensions to um, expressing your brand, right? And so that's why I'm a big believer on, uh, on if, you, if, you, you're, if your objective is to become a mass market, really well-known brand, then you need to be able to um, build a multi-dimensional brand that people can kind of touch and feel and understand. We haven't talked about this, so it's, um, it's I'll spring a little surprise on you, but in terms of the attention that goes to the various channels, if you think about, you know, a, 50, a five second or a 15 second ad and a 30 second ad on linear or BVOD versus a, you know, a sub two second exposure on some of the socials or we, even on YouTube where you can actually click and go, I don't want to see the ad. What are the ratios there for you? Uh, what, what about that attention issue? And then I'm fascinated by how many people do you see will watch a, a full length menu uh, log ad on YouTube, for instance, without skipping? All our metrics for our digital versions of the ad have uh, demonstrated that they are in the upper categories of view-through rates for amongst you know all online ads. And that's because the content's good, right? I mean, that's why Snoop Dogg works, I guess, for you and other things that you're doing. 100% it does. Creative matters, right? I'm a big believer that creative uh, plays a really big part in, um, in creating that mental availability. I mean, that's a... That's a buzz term that uh, you know Byron Sharp inve- uh, invented, uh, and I, I, you know, so it sounds like I'm I subscribe to his theories. I would say he's probably I find him a little bit extreme. There are certain theories he has that I uh, am big believers on, but I think you need to apply a more pragmatic approach to um, to a lot of them, and uh, and I I think the mental availability thing um, it shouldn't just be about distinction uh, as as he's pointed out. Um, if it was just about that, then you just pick a color for your brand that no one else has and you'd, you'd show a 30 second logo on screen and just you know and show that frequently and just hope that uh, you know that currently builds the memory structures but I, I believe that building emotional connection uh, and having really strong creative product makes a really big difference and maybe that's because my agency days uh, but uh, I'll always be preaching that and where were you what so what were you doing you were a creative a suit a strategic planner or the mailman I was I started off as a mailman so did I in dispatch like all of us doing advertising and yeah. Yeah. And making teas and coffees, and actually, I think one of my first jobs was um, filing. And many people won't know what this is, but filing umatic tapes. You're older than you look. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not. No, that's a big rap. Let me just get back to attention for a moment, so that you know we have this discussion about whether how much is how much attention is enough, and if you think about the the the, the fast paced scroll that's going on in the social feeds, and you get a one two second exposure, is that enough for you versus what you might see on Bevo? TV or a radio ad in, in 30 seconds. Where do you sit in that whole what's what's good enough? The answer is different by medium. 
I think, right? And that, that's why I'm such a big fan of ensuring that you have a strong mix that um, a strong mix of different types of mediums where you have the ability to convey the message in the time frame that uh, that you would like, right? So, and again, why I don't believe that uh, um, building it, I believe it's it's challenging to build a really strong brand just using a you know social channel, for example, right? Where you you know where you only have the ability to kind of get people to um, to watch your ad for three seconds you know building a brand is very difficult there i'm not saying it's impossible but it's you know it's certainly much harder than um in bvod where people are watching a 30 second uh you know piece of content now obviously the content and the creativity matters if you've got a piece of um you know, a piece of creative on, on, on a 30 second ad that, uh, you know, isn't very great then, uh, then, and you know, a, a three second piece of content that's really good would trump that. Okay. So that's a, you know, that's obvious, but, um, but, but yeah, so my view is, um, creative matters and creative, uh, that is um, created for the medium or, you know, purpose built for the medium uh, is important. You know, we're making real conscious effort to ensure that we have a social first approach for our creative. We have a, you know, TV first approach for TV only and not not run the TV ad in social and not run the TV ad in, in YouTube. And, you know, um, now you're probably going to, a lot of your listeners are going to probably now go and uh, have a look and point out all the times that I haven't done that. And, <laughs> yes. and that's, uh, that, you know, and they'll find lots of examples of that, but uh, it, it's definitely a... Um, the intent is there. 100%. Yeah. And it's, look, it's, it's great hearing a, a CMO talk about creative because here's, here's one of the things that I often um, talk to a lot of people about is that we are, as an industry, often so obsessed by the channel, by the media channel. We talk about what it delivers in terms of an audience, what it delivers in terms of attention, and the media channel and the buy and the mix. But we very really we talk less uh, about the creative, and it's a, it's it's massively important. But it's it's a fuzzier concept to get your head around, or it's less seems to be less sexy. You got any thoughts on on why we do that? Why we talk about the channel and media, and less about creative as a, as an industry? I think well, I think it's really sad. Uh, what's happened um, in regards to that. So I do agree with you. Uh, and I think the reason we talk a lot more about um, media and numbers-driven, uh, you know, uh, conversations, you know, around channels and um, and metrics and data and, and stuff is because it's safer. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to argue with numbers. It's much harder to justify whether... Uh, you know, this shot with this person smiling is better than that shot there with that person doing a different type of smile. You know, I often worry that the industry is heading towards a place of mediocrity in terms of creativity. I mean, there's a lot of really good work out there now, but more so, I think, you know, things like the iPhone and the fact that, you know, taking video and photos now is completely democratized. To me, that's led to a um, reduction in production values and a, and also a less appreciation for the craft of uh, production. And and I speak about this because I, you know, I really enjoy that. And this is where, you know, when I, in agency world, I was a suit, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time learning the craft of production uh, and the difference between good production values and bad production values, and those things can't be quantified. Um, everyone can tell you the different, tell you whether they've watched a movie that's an A grade movie or a B grade movie. People can tell you whether that looks like a B grade movie, but no one can quantify for you why it feels like a B grade movie. Yeah, great points. And I guess how do you then articulate? 
that that importance of creative and and why it should be uh, an investment uh, to be sort of be sort of shaped and, and and formed with your leadership team. How do you articulate credibly where they don't go? Here's a, here's the, here's the marketing guy with his crayons about to try and colour in something. Obviously, we want to hit objectives and make sure that we're communicating the messages that we want to communicate, right? So that that's a that's a given, right? You want to you want to tick those boxes, ensure that the the work that you're doing is communicating what you want to communicate. But ultimately, it should entertain. That that's the simplest test, I think. If you show something to someone, and they, you know, they kind of give you a uh, neutral um, reaction then that's not really what you want to hear, I don't think. No, it's not the benchmark, is it? Yeah. yeah. It's not. And you don't want a neutral reaction. Marginal uplift would be nice. That, yeah. These days that seems to be, uh, everyone seems to be happy with that. Hey, I've taken lots of your time. I've got a couple more questions and we'll leave you alone to, to, to run the empire, Simon. But um, in terms of, uh, there's two, three things I want to ask you. Firstly, just consumer research and the perceptions between uh, menu log versus Deliveroo versus, versus Uber Eats. Is there anything showing up that, that these brands are different and have a different sense and a perception? in the market from a consumer perspective? Is that, have you got any research showing anything that's different? How are you differentiated from the others? I think more and more, like I said before, the market's becoming a bit more commoditized in terms of the offering. Um, I, look, we, we wouldn't really, we don't normally speak um, about the competitors uh, publicly. Right. Um, so I can't really comment on on how they position themselves or anything uh, like that. But what, what we know is that we're finding that um, there is definitely a lot more commoditization now. There is a, uh, there is a lot more misattribution out there now uh, because there are more players. Ah, right. And so because of that, um, you know, again, creative, your creative, your distinctiveness um, and how you dif- differentiate is, uh, is a lot more important than ever. Great. For final question for you, you talked about uh, investing in, you know, the investment between brand and performance last year. Uh, what does what this year look like for you? Uh, the plans for this year, are there major shifts underway for 2020, uh, from 2020 and what you're going to do this year or is it a continuation what will we like to see from menu log this what are we likely to see from menu log uh this year the entire strategic plan please simon we'd like to you to reveal that i will outline that for you right now <laughs> so you can definitely expect to see a lot more uh continuation of um our brand activity and more consistent and regular presence out there obviously continue investing in our performance activity uh and making sure we're capturing all that great demand out there so a lot, lot more of the same really consi- consolidating all the great work that has been done uh in 2020 2020 was a year that you know when we're not not going to have one like that possibly ever, particularly in our industry. We're going to be focusing a lot more on growing in particular geographies mm-hmm. uh, this year. So uh, a lot more into regional areas. We're quite strong in regional areas of Australia at the moment. Um, we have a really big focus on the inner city areas. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'd like to really grow our business in New Zealand. The last thing, if I can just mention, continued focus on uh, what we call driving more occasions, uh, so that's really been a really big driver of our growth last year. Uh, and that's really about growing, like I said, uh, growing in those um, occasions outside of dinner. So growing breakfast and late night, our breakfast business has grown uh, 30% um, you know, at the back end of last year. And, uh, and our late night has grown about 60%. And so a lot of this has come off, a lot of this has come off the back of our investment in, um, in our delivery fees and being priced competitively in those, those periods that we call non-dinner periods. So we, we are the only aggregator out there that uh, offers a 199 delivery fee uh, outside of dinner. 
so that's you know that's on average half what the competitors would would have right other occasions that we're targeting are occasions associated with sport we're obviously uh, in bed with the NRL did a major activation with the state of origin last year we have a major partnership with the South Sydney Rabbitohs and all of that is about building upon the takeaway occasion that is associated with sport well it's a great point on occasions because I don't even think to be honest about even you know a, a, a delivery for breakfast never never until you've just said it then it hasn't even been on my radar and I go oh yeah I hadn't thought about that um, you sort of so that's I guess a big there's some low-hanging fruit there just in terms of awareness someone like me going oh i should be able to do i I can do breakfast i never thought that yeah that's right and a lot of people are in that same boat right so for us it's it's really about building a stronger awareness that uh our offering is you know will eventually become 24 hour you know we we are we you know we often or the industry talks about how this uh how there are traditionally 21 meal occasions in a uh, in a day, right? Breakfast, lunch, no, sorry, in a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Um, but we are now um, thinking beyond that and tr- positioning the brand as an on-demand brand as opposed to just targeting three meal occasions a day. It's about being able to have a, uh, a more um, vast array of options at any time of day. Um, so if you feel like something at two in the morning or three in the morning, four in the morning, um, you know, there is an option there for you. Uh, and the final one, Simon, is um, it's probably the one that we talked about earlier. There's a little bit of uh, heat around the sector, the debate that's going on publicly about the, the future sustainability of restaurants uh, with the, the commission or the take that the, the aggregators will, will do for taking the order and the gig economy. Uh, how do you see that playing out uh, this year? Does that, is that, will that settle, do you think? Oh, look, what's interesting about this is... So firstly, I should say that Menulog has the lowest average commission of every any player out there. So we we charge less to restaurants to provide the service that uh, that we all you know provide to, uh, to them. Um, the other interesting thing is that we have actually been doing this for far longer than a lot of our other competitors. And so up until the point that our competitors came to this market five or six years ago. Uh, the, the industry, the restaurant industry and Menulog have been operating harmoniously and um, very, you know, operating very effectively in driving incremental growth and helping the restaurant industry grow. All right. It's not until, um, it's not until the other players uh, join the market um, that a lot of these issues have actually uh, come up. You know, um, we're still relatively new to the delivery game. Like I said, we, uh, you know, up until this point, we we were helping restaurants that did their own delivery grow their business, and now we are um, providing logistic services, just like the competitors do, to restaurants that don't currently offer that to help them grow their business as well. And we're we're still new to the game. Yeah, and it's interesting. Your legacy is is probably more aligned to uh, a, a model for the restaurant, uh, a sustainable restaurant model, as I guess, or food 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 model. That's kind of what you're saying because you've been around that long yeah and so and so because of that um the i guess the issues that have uh, come up i I guess uh, you know sometimes i feel like they're a bit they're a little bit overinflated like i said with the the industry and uh, manulog have operated know um very well up until this point i do want to get to disruption and what is what the future food or food industry looks like in five years time and so forth is there big disruption coming to the industry in five years time will we see something a very different food restaurant sector in five years or six years time do you think simon i think we're going to see lots of disruption in every category within the next five years judging from the year we've had and even just the last three years that the whole industry has experienced um not just our industry but many industries i think 
You know, I think there's a lot of uh, things that um, are yet to happen that none of us could um, will be able to foresee. Well, let me give you one example. So I'm aware of, and I can't remember who had the conversation, but this, there is someone telling me about how some restaurants or some food entrepreneurs are now sitting and going, they're setting up industrial kitchens in an industrial area to service the food aggregation delivery service and not even having a stop shop front uh, for walk past or walk in traffic. Uh, are they are they little blips and innovations on the side of the sector or do you think that will become uh, a bit more into the centre and more core to how uh, a business, a food business will look like? Yeah, so there is a bit of that in the industry at the moment. Um, they, they call them dark kitchens. There's a couple of types of dark kitchens there. We would, um, we're not supportive of one model of the dark kitchen where um, a lot of aggregators will um, set up their own dark kitchen and effectively are competing against the, uh, the restaurants out there. Um, and so so um, we don't support that model, but we, are, you know, we are very supportive of the model where um, restaurateurs are setting up their own own commercial kitchens in back streets and not on high streets. Uh, and so that that's definitely a um, that's definitely something uh, you know that there'll be there'll be a lot more of that to come. I think you only need to look to to Asia to see the um, the developments. Uh, well, not just Asia, but many other countries. Um, but to see what the future could potentially look like, you know, in places like Singapore. Um, uh, apartment design is now taking into account the fact that people order out a lot more. I mean, people generally eat out a lot uh, in in a lot of those countries, but that because of the the likes of the growth of the delivery industry in those countries, a lot of the apartments are being developed with no kitchens. Is that right? Literally, really? That's right. Do you see that happening here? I can't see that happening here. So that's interesting. Well, listen, there's a really good basis for another conversation there. I, I think we've gone too long and, um, and you've got things to do. So Simon Chen, great talking. Look forward to catching up in another six months. Stay safe and we'll talk again and uh, all the best for the next six, six to 12 months. Great. Thank you, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Cheers, Simon. Thanks, mate. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.